as we prepare to, to read, to hear God's holy word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to, to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, and now as we hear your word, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth, shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. We are on, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This will be the last Sunday we spend on this particular passage. Uh, And in fact, next Sunday, we'll uh, go to Luke's gospel uh, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, and we'll be in Luke's gospel through Holy Week. Hear now the word of the Lord, it is written. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had things, all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now to him who loves us, who's freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. These past few weeks, we have looked at the four devotional practices of the post-Pentecost church identified by Luke in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And we've discussed how those who had been captured by the gospel message at Pentecost became committed to Christ along with the apostles. And by extension, they became incorporated into the church, the body of Christ, and committed to the Christian community. And as we have already seen, this wasn't a casual commitment, if there can be such a thing. It wasn't a show up but remain anonymous type of situation. It was more involved than that. Nor was it simply a gather once a week for worship, put a few coins in the offering plate, but go your separate ways the rest of the week type of situation. Rather, the window into the early church that Luke presents to us reveals an all-in commitment. There isn't any indication that there wasn't, that there was anything half-hearted about it. It was a community that had together day in and day out, obstinately committed themselves to the word of God through the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And what we see here is a community that not only gathers once or twice a week to worship together, study God's word together, and pray together, it's a community that loves one another with great intensity and intentionality. It's a community that clearly values relationship above material possessions 
as they give themselves and their belongings to one another with joy and generosity. It's a community that opens their homes to one another and offers hospitality to one another in Christ. And the fact that this community is described in this way on the heels of Pentecost reinforces the reality that this community is living in this way because it is filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But what we want to see this morning is that the Christian community produces something. It produces something. It produces a curious response from the world. Luke says this at the end of this second chapter. And day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As they lived these spirit-filled, spirit-empowered lives of devotion, the Lord was enfolding into their community more and more new believers. The church was continuing to grow and expand. And the plain message of this scripture is this. There is something compelling, very compelling about this community. It was so compelling, in fact, that outsiders, unbelievers, were taking notice and were being attracted to it. And it could be, on a very simplistic level, that people are naturally drawn to community. Human beings were created for community, and even non-believers want to gather themselves together formally or informally. We see this all around us in the world, and we take part in it, right? We join clubs and organizations. We gather with neighbors and neighborhood associations. We gather in clubs for sports, whether that be our children's activities, athletic activities, or our own involvement, whether it be golf or tennis or running or CrossFit, or whether we're simply part of a fan base for a college or professional team. We gather in organizations devoted to community involvement and service, like Rotary or Kiwanis or Junior League. We gather into professional societies and unions with others in our vocational field. We gather with those who share the same political affiliation as we do. We are social beings because we were created in this way. And so we're constantly looking for community because we have a God-given desire for community. So it could be a possible explanation for the growth of the early church. It could simply be that people were drawn to be a part of this new and exciting group, this new movement. But Scripture tells us that there is something different about the church of Jesus Christ. This community is different than all other communities, even as we recognize that we aren't the only ones who gather on Sundays for a few hours to sing and chant and cry out together. There are huge places of worship all around the world in which this is also going on. Usually, these events involve a large field and a ball, though. 
nor is the church unique in being a place where we interact socially or network or even serve together. There are other organizations where those things are happening, the country club, Rotary. But the church can't be reduced to these things. In fact, it is much, much more than these things. And there is a fundamental difference between the church and all other human organizations. You see, the church isn't just a group made up of people who have gathered together around a similar cause or need or social position or life experience like every other human community. No, the church isn't like any other community that exists in this world because it isn't a human-built community. It was established by God, and it doesn't truly exist without God. We can build massive organizations, organizations that are valuable to society and do a great amount of good in this world, and we can do this by doing what comes quite naturally to us. We gather ourselves together with others who are similar to us, with other like-minded or goal-oriented people. But the church community, at least the church community in its true form, does not occur naturally. It is established, sustained, and expanded supernaturally. It doesn't exist without the truth and the power of the gospel being at work. And this is what we are seeing in Acts. We are seeing and we will see people who have no similarities outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And we will see those people finding themselves fellowshipping in each other's homes and sitting around a common table. We are seeing and we will see people who once lived lives filled with self-promotion and self-satisfaction enter into a community that proves costly to self, in which selfishness is put to death and others' needs are considered more important than one's own. We are seeing and will see a community in which salvation is freely offered and in which love and forgiveness are shared as the outworking of this salvation. No other community on earth is this the case. This is a new type of community that is created here in Acts 2 at Pentecost. It is a community that has been transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and draws its life from Christ in the power of the Spirit. And as this community is led along by the Spirit and organized in its life together around Christ in practical and regular ways, its progress toward Christ is accelerated. And what this means is that it is a community that is growing not only numerically, but in holiness. It's holy because it is a community created and set apart by God who is holy. But it is growing in holiness as it devotes itself to Jesus Christ and is shaped more and more in his image. Said differently, the church is a community that is being sanctified. So it is a community that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and is being sanctified in Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul says about the church in Ephesians 5, speaking to Christian husbands. Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As much as we believe that Christ loves us as individuals, that he died for us as individuals, we mustn't allow that to cloud the truth that Christ died not only for us as individuals, but for us communally, as a community of believers. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, is what Paul tells us. And don't miss here in Acts 2.47 that Luke tells us that salvation and the church are inextricably tied together. The church is growing numerically because people are being saved. Salvation comes in Christ through the church and is adding souls to the church. But Jesus' purpose in loving us enough to die for us does not stop at our salvation or growing his church numerically. It is his purpose to sanctify us as a community. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. But listen to how Paul describes what this sanctifying process accomplishes. That Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The sanctification process is a process of beautification. It's a process of beautification. Jesus is smoothing out the church's rough edges. He is healing her wounds. He is covering over her impurities. Jesus is beautifying the church, which is his bride. This is what God's word tells us the church is. It is the beloved bride of Jesus Christ. It is a bride that has been chosen by God, not because of any merit of her own. In fact, she was plucked out of prostitution to worldly idols. There are some graphic passages in the Old Testament, especially in the prophet Ezekiel, where God's word speaks to God's people's previous state, dead in their sin. But God in his sovereign love chose her redeemed her from her sin, washed her clean of her filth by the blood of Jesus Christ, clothed her in the spotless gown of the righteousness of Christ. And what this creates and is creating is a bride adorned in the beauty of holiness. It's the holiness of her bridegroom to whom her radiance gives glory. There is no other man-made organization on earth that we can say the same thing about. It is in no other organization is there salvation, forgiveness of sins, and sanctification. And what is our response? What is our response when we see a bride? adorned in her bridal gown, clothed in sparkling white, meticulously prepared for her her husband, radiant. What is our response? Isn't our response, wow, isn't she 
beautiful? Isn't she captivating? It isn't just the awaiting husband who takes notice when his bride appears and makes her way down the aisle to him. A bride captures the attention of all gathered. Her beauty creates an attraction and an admiration. And what we are seeing here in Acts 2 is just how compelling the bride of Christ is to the world around her. As the church community is captured and captivated by her bridegroom, Jesus Christ, as she commits herself to him, she is beautified by him through the working of the Holy Spirit. She is being made radiant, being washed in the water with the word, and it is cause for attraction. There is something compelling about her, especially for a world longing for true community, a world desperate for belonging, a world aching for love, a world yearning for hope and joy and peace from the bride of Christ. Others are called to come and to experience the blessing of this covenant relationship, come and experience the goodness of Jesus Christ. Now we should note here that the church's attractiveness isn't because of the individuals that make up the community. The church is not attractive like belonging to an exclusive club or organization that is filled with the wealthy, the powerful, the popular is attractive. No, the church is attractive because of Jesus Christ and his redeeming and sanctifying love displayed through his, his bride who responds to his love through faithful obedience to him, through worship of Jesus Christ, through loving and caring for one another. The church is attractive because she is revealing and reflecting Christ in his self-sacrificing love. And this should give us confidence to know that the church here in Acts is growing by leaps and bounds. And who's at the core of this community? It's fishermen. And tax collectors, common folk, not people of great influence or wealth, just sinners redeemed by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Their weakness, in fact, does not diminish the attractiveness of the community. It adds to it because in their weakness, God's strength is displayed all the more and made to look all the more glorious. And I hope as we meditate on Acts 2 today that we would see and savor the beauty of the bride of Christ, that we would desire that our community would have this attractiveness to it. Not that being a compelling community would be our primary goal, but that as we seek to grow in Christ, that he would beautify us in holiness as his radiant bride and that this would bring glory to him. This is what we are really after. We should desire for Jesus Christ to be glorified and exalted among us. So we aren't after community for the sake of community. We aren't after devotion for the sake of earning salvation or earning a good name for ourselves in the larger community. Our focus must always be on Jesus Christ, our head, our bridegroom. His glory displayed by living as those he has called us to be, empowered by his Holy Spirit. But even as we recognize here in Acts 2 that a gospel-created life together produces a compelling witness in the world, we need to be careful to understand a couple of things that are not implied here. 
I want to mention these two in particular because I think that the church in America has gone astray by making wrong assumptions about the implication of passages like Acts 2 concerning the attractiveness of the church. And we at Covenant don't need to fall into these temptations. So first, no matter how faithfully a Christian community lives in its life together, no matter how spirit-filled or spirit-empowered it is, no matter how gospel-centered it is, no matter how devoted the community members are to Christ and to one another, no matter how beautiful the church is in holiness, we should not expect all people in the world to be attracted to her. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I'm all about the unity and purity of the church community. By all means, we should be earnestly striving to live holy lives committed to the Lord. We should acknowledge the places where we have failed to do this and repent. But I have heard sermons, I have read books, I'm sure that many of you have too, that either imply or explicitly state that the world would like and accept the church if only she would live more faithfully to her calling. This passage does not say this, nor does it imply this. In all likelihood, the reason that there was a sharing of goods in the Christian community seen here in Acts 2 was out of necessity, not only because there are poor individuals in every community, but also but also because as people heard the gospel message and came to Christ and were baptized and became committed to the church community, there were probably some very real negative social consequences that came with becoming a Christian. Without doubt, the Christians in the early church lost social standing. They were estranged from their relatives. They were shunned by old friends. They experienced downturn in their business dealings all because they had committed themselves to following Christ. In other words, they became poor and needy as they committed themselves to Christ and his church. And Jesus tells us that this is what is to be expected from following him. Just as the world hated him and sought to destroy him, so too will the world despise his church. And we will see this reaction to the church throughout Acts. So even as the Apostle Paul says that in our living, we are spreading the aroma of Christ, which is the fragrance of life to life, that for those in whom the Holy Spirit is at work, that the gospel message proclaimed and lived out in community is compelling and attractive. It is a sweet and appealing scent to them. But it is also the fragrance, Paul says, of death, to death for those who are perishing, who are obstinately committed, committed to living not in obedience to God, but in rebellion against him, the Christian community is repugnant because it presents a constant reminder that life is to be lived in submission to God, not in slavery to sin. To those people, the church provides a condemning witness. So my prayer is that this passage would give us a clear vision of the church we want to be. It would provide for us a list of things that we should be devoted to. And we should have no small ambition in this regard. We should want to be everything that we are called to be by God's word and by his grace. But we also don't want to have expectations that are not in accordance with scripture. 
having realistic expectations about how the world will respond to the faith community, the faithful church community accomplishes two things. First, it keeps us from becoming discouraged when we meet resistance. Again, the reality is that the only thing that Scripture tells us to expect is persecution. We should be seeking to live out the gospel with the knowledge that God is calling people to himself and that God will accomplish his purposes through our living out the gospel and presenting the gospel, especially through his faithful church. But we should not understand this to mean that all will receive the gospel message with joy. The gospel message will be rejected. We will be rejected because Jesus was rejected. And this is to their judgment. It's not necessarily a judgment on the faithfulness of our proclamation or our living. So do not be discouraged or quick to think that you are doing something wrong if you are met with resistance. Second, it keeps us from falsely believing that growing the church is entirely up to us. It is God who created the church. It is God who sustains the church. It is God who builds the church. As the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor him who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We need to see this as a grace to us. It frees us to live in obedience without believing that the future of God's church rides squarely on us. God will continue his church with or without us. That doesn't make us unimportant, but it also doesn't make us vital. And the issue here is that when we believe it is solely up to us, we can become quickly become obsessed with numbers within our community. And when we become more concerned with the numbers being added than our faithfulness in our life together, then we begin to come up with result-driven methods to add to our number. And the problem is that attendance and membership can easily be manufactured apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We can build a community in our own strength just as we build other organizations in our own strength. This doesn't bring God glory or give witness to Jesus Christ, though. Unfortunately, churches do this all the time. They make themselves to be attractional communities rather than attractive communities. And what I mean by that is that they use worldly means in an intentional attempt to draw a crowd. They find ways to market themselves. Instead of relying on the supernatural power of the gospel to draw people together, they find ways to attract people with catchy slogans, enticing programs, flashy venues, worship that mirrors worldly entertainment. Focus groups. And don't get me wrong, it isn't that the church should be trying to make herself unappealing, nor are the crowds the issue. We see in Jesus' ministry that there were often crowds around him. There were crowds around him because he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is drawn near and he's doing miracles that demonstrate this truth. But he isn't healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead, casting out demons for the purpose of drawing a crowd. 
The crowd is the result of people being drawn to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Attractional churches are attempting to draw a crowd for the sake of drawing a crowd, believing that once they have a crowd, that then they can slip the gospel in through the back door. It is a bait and switch. The gospel should never be relegated to the back door, though. Nor should churches be using worldly means that are clearly intended to provide false pretense. The gospel should be front and center. A commitment to truth should be front and center. A devotion to Christ in one another should be front and center. And if that is happening, the Lord will draw in those he has chosen because the community is inherently attractive when Christ in his glory is the focus. Paul says this in his first letter to the church in Corinth. In speaking about worship, Paul states, but if all prophesy, meaning they're all speaking God's word, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And Paul's point here is to say that we should stick to the basics. What is unique to this God-created community? If God's word is understood to be of utmost importance and is being faithfully proclaimed and obeyed among the Christian community, it will accomplish its goal of causing a conviction of sin, which leads to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Those outsiders who come and are pierced by God's word will plainly see that God is present in power in the Christian community. This isn't something that we can manufacture. It is something that happens only when God is alive and at work in the community and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of God's grace. So we must be very, very careful that we aren't growing the church by our own means, believing that this is what God desires. God desires faithfulness to the gospel and our commitment to the basics. Our task is not to make ourselves acceptable to the world, but acceptable to God. If he chooses to add to our number because of our faithfulness, then blessed be the name of the Lord. If he chooses to bring persecution to us for our faithfulness, then blessed be the name of the Lord. The second way in which we go wrong with Acts 2 by making wrong assumptions is believing that because living lives of faithful devotion within the Christian community can bring growth to the church, that this means that there is no pressing need for outward evangelism. We need to be very clear. God bringing people to us because of our faithfulness is not meant to replace our call to go out into the world. What Acts will show us is that the early church did not sit around expecting God to bring people to them. It wasn't that they didn't trust him. It was that he had commanded them to go. In fact, even within this passage, there is a strong likelihood and thus an assumption by many commentators that believers were evangelizing in the larger community, especially in the temple, as we will see believers doing later in Acts. This might be part of the reason why so many were being added to their number. Regardless, as joyful as this fellowship was that they enjoyed, they did not turn in on themselves. They didn't isolate themselves from the world. They didn't pull back from the world and seek to set up a community removed from the world. Rather, 
this time together was a means of becoming spiritually nourished and re-energized to go out into the world, giving faithful witness to Jesus Christ and spreading the gospel message. And when the early church perhaps did at times become too comfortable with their situation, when they did perhaps lose this vision of their commission to go to the end of the earth, making disciples of all nations, God had ways of shaking them out of their slumber. We'll see this in a few chapters. So this sort of passive evangelism, if we can call it that, might have been an outcome of their faithfulness within their community, but it wasn't the primary goal. And it certainly didn't exclude a very active outward evangelism. And the lesson for us is that we don't ever want to resign ourselves to waiting for people to come to us. Dearly beloved, this is how a local church dies. And we all might know of churches that this has been the case. Let it not be so for us here at Covenant. Let us not shrink from our responsibility to go out and do the work, however uncomfortable it might be at times, of verbally professing the gospel in the world. So even as we commit ourselves as a community to Christ, looking to be beautified in holiness, understanding that people are drawn to the beauty of Christ, a beauty that is unlike any other in all of this world, revealing to the glory of God a people redeemed and transformed by the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a people gathered from many different backgrounds and brought into communion with one another by their union with Christ. Let us seek to share this blessedness of the community Community with all others we meet. And let us use no other methodology than the one given to us by God. The proclamation and living of the gospel. For there is no human methodology that can replace the work of the Holy Spirit through the church. And may God receive all the glory. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have redeemed us from the pit. That you have saved us from our sin by the precious blood of your dear son, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that having claimed us as your own, you have brought us into communion with your church, the bride of Christ. That you wash us with the water of your word. Sanctify us, making us radiant, beautiful, perfected for Christ. Help us to long ever more for the sanctification that comes by your Spirit. And make us to be a compelling community, offering a winsome witness in the world that others might be attracted to Christ and might join with us in bringing you the praise and honor that you are due. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic 
the communion of 